Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, everyone. We're here today with uh, Tony Hoffman. Tony, so nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Thanks for having me. And uh, Tony brought a friend along, too. Uh, Matt, he's going to be sitting here in the background. He'll uh, yell at us if we get out of line anyway. Is that okay, Matt? Yeah, good to be here. <laughs> All right. No, uh, for, for uh, those in my audience who don't know who Tony is, I'm going to have him give just a, a brief introduction about himself. Well, we got some important things to... Uh, to chat about today, but, uh, in the, um, so as, as Tony, as I would describe you, uh, unfortunately I get to know of the great work that you're doing now. And that's in the recovery community and the things uh, that you, that you're speaking about the, uh, the schools that you go and talk to the young people that you're able to touch the Ted talks that I've, that I've listened to the podcasts that you've been on and the message you're delivering is just tremendous. I wish I had just known you in the other world when you were a BMX standout and uh, and a, a Olympic coach and and all of those uh, things uh, uh, before uh, before life uh, took a turn. But uh, you know, isn't that the way life is sometimes? You know, uh, different. I, I say this oftentimes: people that I that I ran into now in the recovery community are just some of the best people that that I know. And of course I have the chance to sit across the table from them like this now, right. Mm-hmm. Or do events with them or, 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 or reach out and just see how they're, how they're touching lives. And it's just amazing. And, and that speaks directly that you and I were talking earlier just about the disease of addiction mm-hmm. and how that is just that it's a disease and the person that we're dealing with is still the same. You're, I imagine, as I'm sitting here across the table from you now, that this is what most of your teachers saw when you were in high school. Sure. I, well, <laughs> well, depends maybe on what or maybe not. I guess it was teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, an explanation of myself: If you're from the Central Valley, I'm a Clovis kid, through and through. Right. My parents were upper middle class. Probably had a combined income of two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year put me in Clovis school so I could get a top education in the United States. And I played sports. If you didn't play sports when you were female, you got involved in cheer. If you didn't play sports, you get involved in cheer. You played in band. I'm a Clovis kid. And I played sports. That's what you do. That's what I do. Um, Today, trying to define who I am and what I do is very difficult because I have my hands in so many different projects and so many different things that I'm trying to build with my story and with my experiences to help people. Uh, Today, I'm an owner of a treatment center called PH Wellness in Southern California. I am a nationally renowned speaker on mental health and addiction. I'm a former founder and director of a nonprofit organization called the Free Will Project. I'm a former professional BMX athlete that coached in the 2016 Olympics. Um, But I'm a Clovis kid. I'm just a Clovis kid from the Central Valley of California. And uh, I had a lot of struggles through my childhood that really manifested themselves in my teenage years and that took me to a very dark place. And a lot of teachers didn't like me because a lot of my mental health struggles started to show up by the time I was in high school. And uh, we didn't have a lot of resources to manage those experiences as in, in Clovis right. at the time uh, and across the United States. We're still in a place where we're growing as a country and in the infrastructure and what we provide for individuals who struggle with mental health or substance use which can turn into substance use disorders, um, addictions later in life. So, yeah, I'm a Clovis kid, played sports, was gifted at every sport, was typically the best player on the teams that I w- w- was on. Coaches at all schools knew who I was, whether it was Wahlberg at Clovis West or um, the Clo- coaches at Bullard High School. They were all aware of who I was with my gifts, especially when it came to basketball until I found a BMX bike and then was no longer a par- part of team sports. Uh, that's, so that's the, and for someone who never followed any of the BMX stuff, though, when I would see it, I mean, were you at the initiation of the X Games or right when that was uh, 
how did that uh, so i i came from bmx racing background which is a little bit different than the trick side of things the trick side is what most people equate uh connected with the x games was the tricks and the gnarly stuff racing was a part of the original x games in like the early 2000s but it was immediately taken out um and, and when you get into the workings and the politics behind the x games most people don't watch it anymore because it became a corporate event in which the only reason you got an event is because you paid the upfront money to get your event in it. Oh, okay. And that's why it turned into all these really dumb motocross events and these really weird car races. It was because the money, the money behind it was allowing it to become an event that was no longer actually an interest for most people. So as a racer, we were disconnected from the freestyle side of things. We are a very niche sport, very much like track and field, although track and field is a collegiate sport. Um, so we traveled the country into these little rural communities oftentimes like rockville uh, rockford illinois um or outside of uh, oh okay nashville tennessee or you know fresno has a, a track at warrior park that has a national and we would travel around the tour doing that so no x games okay yeah okay well so so again uh, and then that was uh that was in the past, and I know one of your nonprofits because I heard you talk about it before. The Free Wheel, you Free Wheel get, Project, yep. right? So, so that was something where you gave away. You you really you got to tap in to, yep. to what your old passion was, mm-hmm. right? So, talk so about I, that just for yeah. A minute. So when I got out of prison, one of my goals was to start an organization that I could work with kids in Southeast Fresno, specifically Southeast Fresno, because if you're not aware, Southeast Fresno actually has some of the poorest zip codes in the United States, and I wanted to provide an opportunity to kids that didn't have anything. And I wanted to really try to hone in on this idea that prevention really had nothing to do with the ability to educate students on the outcomes of what happens when you use substance, but actually creating an experience within the young person that changed the conversation about themselves and what they were capable of doing in the world, which would then, in my opinion, supersede any type of substance, right? Because if a substance provides an individual a feeling of euphoria, which a person then chases after, if I could create a self-image within a person through an experience that empowered themselves, they wouldn't want to change the way they right, feel right? because they love who they are and the way they feel. And so I believe that I could do that with what was gifted to me was the gift of action sports. So we created an after-school program outside of the summer camp that originally started called the BARS program, which was behavioral and academic restoration through action sports. I'm going to provide an experience we're going to help you with your school, so we're going to lift your spirits through seeing engage, uh, improved academic performance. Then we're going to provide the equipment and take you to Mosqueda Park, which is the largest cement BMX park in the United States, and we're going to mentor you at the facility of riding your BMX bike. At the end, you can earn your own bike, $400 bike, a lock, a helmet, and a bunch of cool swag from Action Sports sponsors that were supporting me. And we believed that once they found a love or passion for the sport, that if we enabled them to continue to do it after they were with us, that they would then go to the park to receive the high right. that we want right. them to have, right? Is the shift in inner self-talk about what they're capable of doing and what matters in life most. Yeah. No, that's uh, that, that, that sounds awesome. So, so again, for people who don't know you and, and, Oh my gosh! Again, just from when we spoke before, and, and even now, the, the the concepts that you're laying out, your understanding of the psyche of young people, mm-hmm. and how that feeds into and is challenged with addiction, and then you just threw something in there, real short. You said, "When I got out of prison." Yep. Okay. See, I've seen the TED talk, so I know that there's a story there, and you don't need to rehash it. But just I, I, I my, I, I want the audience that that don't know who. Tony is to to understand that that there's a whole person there that I'm sure seems like a whole world away. Sure. That that I can't even that I can't even uh, uh, fathom again given the conversation that we're having now. So just <laughs> so so j- just briefly to, to to understand why why we know where your passion is and where it, it lies from and and just give us a couple minutes about sure. your about your background. Absolutely, absolutely. So when I tell you I was a Clovis kid that played sports, that's what I was team sports in the beginning. I switched to individual sports at 12 years old. At 18 years old, I was featured on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine in the world called the BMXer magazine. And I was well on my way to being a very successful professional athlete by the time I was a senior at Clovis High School. 
what most people didn't know was I didn't want to race BMX. I did it because I was good at it. And the only reason I got on a BMX bike was because I got kicked out of seventh grade for selling weed to a girl. Wow. At that time, I only played sports because that's what everybody did. Right. My biggest struggle was that I was better than everybody at sports because my inner self wants to create programs and do things that help people. These were manifestations and understandings that I came to when I was in a prison cell and had just too much time to think, which actually turned out to be a gift, right? Was I really like helping people. I always helped my neighbor kids. It was always about making them better athletes, making them better students and, and giving of myself and my time to see these other people grow and reach their potential. That mechanism has been there since the beginning of time for me. And it's not something I asked for but it also was a double-edged sword in which my competitive side, my ability to compete was that of a higher caliber than most of the students and kids that I was with, which made me feel bad because I never mm. wanted to beat anybody. I didn't like the idea of I have to win, you have to lose. I didn't like the idea of the coach always looking to me to win the games. Mm. And I'm looking for Richie to get an opportunity. I'm looking for Nate to get an opportunity because I want to see them succeed. I want to see them be the game winner. I want to see them be what everybody sees in me. Yeah, and that's not exactly the Clovis mantra. No, no, it's not. And so, <laughs> for any of us that have dealt in, in Clovis schools and that are around, it's it's all about winning. It's all about winning, right? And it's weird because I have this desire to be the best, this work ethic, this intentional focus to be the best, but I also have this other side of me that doesn't want to beat other people or be the best if they have to feel like they're not the best. And so during this time of middle school years, because I had these mechanisms in place that were kind of my innate features, I had this really confusing time in which I was warring with myself and who I was and what my place was in the world, and I really didn't like it. I didn't like the anxiety that came with who I was, I didn't like the anxiety that came with the responsibility of people expecting me to be a leader because I didn't know what that was at that time. And we'll explain some of the dynamics that kind of really played a role in that. And uh, I began to hate myself. I just didn't want to be Tony Hoffman. And, um, you know, I tried to tell my mom I want to kill myself. I don't like who I am. I just want to be somebody different. You know, I, w I want to be normal like everybody else. At the time, my mom didn't understand what to do time there was you know no therapist there was no openness to therapy and counseling and there were no other parents that would probably sit down and say you know my son or daughter's in the same space you know these kind of conversations were kept quiet and so you know I felt like my mom didn't understand me and uh, I felt like I couldn't turn to my dad because my dad was workaholic um, one of my biggest struggles was my father's absence from my childhood specifically with my basketball uh, playing basketball. My first dream was to go to the NBA. I tell kids, you know, that's what I wanted to do with my life, go to the NBA. And I needed my dad there to kind of teach me how to be a leader and teach me how to fail and kind of teach me the responsibilities of, of being a human being and w how he's grown to be the man that he is today, which I, I look up to in this, in, in this moment. Um, but at that time, I didn't have that direction. So this whole time, I'm, I'm having this self-hatred conversation. I'm having this suicidal ideation. I hate the anxiety that comes with me, the responsibility of needing to be a leader. And then I don't have anybody to turn to. So I'm just overwhelmed with this confusion because I'm going to school and I'm seeing people smile. I'm going to school and seeing people happy, and I'm not feeling that for myself. So while everybody thinks I got it going on because you know I'm absolutely destroying right, the sport right. of BMX, and on the cover of a magazine, on the inside, I'm absolutely at my worst by my senior year. Say, and Tony, I'm going to reflect on that just for a moment, and and just say, you know, in 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 our foundation, we talk a lot about breaking the stigma of addiction, mm -hmm. and the stigma that goes along with mental health issues, that goes along with depression, right? Which a lot of those then go hand in hand with with the use, that desire to be just normal. I mean, I, I find it ironic. I've had, I've had people in here that sit where you're sitting that have stories of the worst kind of physical and sexual abuse as they were growing up as children, and that's what drove them into their addiction. Sure. Can I stop you real quick? Please. 
68% of kids that start using substances, including nicotine products, before the age of 14 have been sexually abused. Sexual abuse is a major precursor to substance use disorders in a person's life. As, 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 I, as I can imagine. I mean, absolutely. Thank it, you yeah. for that, seeing that. Yeah. The fact that you can say, and I can imagine, is a conversation that I'm trying to get people to start. Because when I sit down with a, t- a young person and I start talking to them about their life, and I ask them what's happening, I could say, I see why you might want to smoke cigarettes. I see now why you would want to drink yeah. alcohol. You're not bad. I'm not putting the right the blame on you for for just living in a human condition. Right. Right. Who who wants to feel anxiety no. to that degree? Fear, guilt, shame, rejection, confusion. And and what an opportunity and, and you and I were talking earlier that that school districts have when there is a problem that's shown, when a problem does come up, mm-hmm. instead of moving them down the road to a continuation school or, or into a, a class with all of those kids, right? That they do some, some seeking, they dig a little deeper, they find out what's going on. And again, while 68% of it may be tied into to sexual abuse for you, it was your success. Sure. And my dad's and, absence. Yeah. And, and now, so, so again, where everyone thinks that, that, that everything's just perfect for, you know, for, for Tony, possibly even made it more difficult for you sure. to even to, to, to say that. I mean, it could become even more stigmatized and again, I, just because, and so again, that I, I just keep thinking about, cause I know it's so important for me. How do we get kids? And when I say kids, wow. People. Yeah. How, how do we, how do we get that conversation started? How do we get that to change? How do we get to, to be able to have a conversation like this with other people where it's not, oh my God, they're talking about drugs or they're talking about suicide or they're talking about depression or they're talking about, because that's life. Yeah, we're getting there. As a country, we're getting there. You know, and, 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 and I have a different pulse than a lot of folks because I'm in different communities all across the country. We're not quite there. Um, I still go into some areas. You know, I went into one of the overdose capitals of the United States, Dayton County, Ohio, just this, this year. And after I finished the high school presentation, the person that brought me said, do you really have to tell the students that you've lost 14 friends from your school to drug overdoses? And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, like that's the truth. Right. She's like, you can't focus more on like the positive part. And I'm like, yeah, I get to the positive part when I get to the positive part of my story. Right. But you need to know the truth leading up to that. And that is a bunch of middle-class kids upper middle class white kids struggled with mental health, struggled with trauma, struggled with managing their own experiences. One of my co-defendants that's dead, his mom was a teacher. High expectations to be an excelled learner in school. By the way, high expectations create anxiety disorders in itself. Perfectionism, these things that are hard to keep up with. When we don't learn how to manage those experiences, it tips our scales so far to one direction. A drug or a substance can absolutely appear to provide some type of relief to the person that's using it. And then when you mix that with the component that addiction's not a choice, Brother, how do we, so the, 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 the yeah. conversation starts with much younger students. My idea is that every young kid in elementary school should be introduced to a therapist on campus at least twice a year. The idea behind this is that we normalize the experience of utilizing a safe space to have conversations. It also begins the conversation of or centered around every person has experiences and things that are happening in their life that create emotions. But, but now uh, if I'm the parent, if I'm the parent and I'm going to push back on this, what you're saying something's wrong with my kid. He's got to see somebody now. I would twice s- a year. There's nothing wrong with my kid. I mean, I can just hear the sure. Well, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I can just feel that and that and that pressure and that and that pushback. And that's the stigma. That, 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 and that's and that's the stigma. What, what what you said that was most important to me about that second is you said it'll normalize mm-hmm. the conversation. So now when that young person is feeling whatever that's not normal, it's okay for him to go and talk to somebody about it. Yep. That's the first response and, is and to I, talk. And I can tell you, I, I, while I don't believe that my actions, that, that my actions caused my son's addiction, 
absolutely, they still had an influence. Sure. They, they still had, they still had an influence. And I can, and I can tell you that I am, I am just so ashamed, uh, for, for so much that, that I let my own, and I don't even think, I don't think of myself as someone who has a big ego or, you know, that I need a lot of attention or whatever, but I can, I can replay since my son is gone, I replay conversations over and over where, where I had to be right in the conversation with him. And there was almost that sense of, Hey, you know what? I didn't have these problems when I was your age. There's no way that you could, I couldn't even, I couldn't even conceive that, that he was having those kind of issues. I couldn't even conceive that his use of marijuana would have been any different than what my use of marijuana was, much less the fact that the marijuana was so different. Sure. But back, back when I was using to the compared to the THC level of what he was using and how it was affecting him. Now, this is a great point, and I'm, I'm actually happy that you brought that up. Now, Matt has heard my evolved stigma speech. The TED Talk is a very, very simplified version of the highlight reels of how I've kind of dispelled these myths through my own accomplishments of what, what I've been able to do with my story is one of the stigmas that are presented towards individuals like myself or even your son through his journey is that we lacked willpower, right? We just needed to know our limits or stop. An individual that typically moves or communicates from this position in life is somebody that used cocaine in their college years, drank heavily in their college years, smoked pot in their college years or even their high school years, and it didn't do that to them. Right. So then we, we, we take a personalized reality and then we just take a huge blanket and we put it on everybody. Yep. Because it didn't happen to me, the fact that it's happening to you means that you just need to man up or pull up your britches and say no, stop, and use your willpower. Just stop. Just stop. If it was that easy, I would have never went down the road I went down. If it was that easy, your son wouldn't have went down no. the road that he went down. There is something uniquely different about my brain your son's brain, Matt sitting next to me's brain. I can't control what happens once the substance is taking its toll on my brain because the addiction started. And that's something that, you know, some people say, well, are you blaming your dad? And I'm like, no, because I was already struggling. The experience with my dad exacerbated some of those struggles and confusions, but my dad did not engineer my brain. He didn't. You know, my, my athlete, uh, Brooke Crane also struggled with some stuff about her identity and had a lot of suicidal ideation. She drank beers. But I remember one time looking in her fridge being like, dang, that beer has been in there for months. And she goes, yeah, I just don't really like drinking that much. That's because her brain is totally different than mine. Right. We both had enough backstory and mental health struggles on the foundational side for her to be just like me. But her brain is not like my brain. She doesn't have the addictive brain. And, and it's so hard for, for those of us who aren't, that, that, that don't struggle with addiction, mm -hmm. to understand that. Right. We just can't, because again, like I said, in, in college, we all partied. Yep. And partied hard. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe any otherwise now. You know, so, but, but again, how, you know, how, how is it that you can't, that, that you can't, Stop. And now the, the closest thing that I have to understanding that now is I have never dealt with depression. I've been a little melancholy at different times during my life, like everybody, what I would call is average. Yeah. But, but once my son passed, I entered into a depression that was, that was so deep. My wife had begged me to go see a psychiatrist and I was on antidepressants for a year and it saved my life. I mean, it got me where I, I couldn't drive down the street without pulling over and just breaking down every, I mean, every single time. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get a block away because there's not a, a road in Fresno that I hadn't traveled with my son. Mm -hmm. So there's just memories and triggers everywhere, right? And I, I thought to myself at that moment, if when my son talked about being depressed and I could never, in, in fact, I don't even remember those conversations. That's how much I blocked him out. Mm -hmm. if, if, if he was only half as depressed as I felt, for that year after, after he passed, I, I don't know how, 
how he survived. Well, and now I do know how he survived. He did whatever he could. He taught himself how to yeah, survive. Yeah. I get that now. Yeah. But what, you know, what a shame that it took that for me to understand. And now trust me, I'm much more empathetic when I talk to people and they talk about being depressed or they talk about uh, issues that are happening in their family. Mm-hmm. I mean, I relate to those very quickly now. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sensitive to those now. And I no longer ever say, oh, well, I experienced that. You'll get over it. It's what, you know, or, or whatever all the catchphrases are that we have. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was just, uh, that. that's interesting. But I, I, in my mind, I like to apply that, especially when I'm p- talking to, to young people that are, that are in recovery and, and, and new into recovery. And I just, boy, I, I, I really feel for them. And, and where they're at and, and, and what they're feeling. I just want their life to somehow be, I want them to know that they're still loved. Yeah. That and that's they're the right still thing. a good person. Yeah. You know, I always say, um, where did you learn about people who struggle with addiction? I try to stay away from the word addict as much as possible when I'm, in a super public forum, only in a very private conversation where I'm still okay identifying myself as an addict. Some people don't like that anymore. Where did you first learn about a person who struggled with addiction? What did he look or she look like? And how did that play a role in your overall belief system about individuals, which also then turned around and played a role in how you didn't listen to certain parts of your son's story when he was telling you because your yeah. son doesn't look like right. what you were taught. Right. Like everyone in the seventies and eighties on TV in the just say no campaigns and all yeah. that. Yeah, no, exactly. Or for Clovis kids. Yeah. Drug addicts come from Southeast Fresno, Southwest Fresno. Yeah. North Fresno. They don't look like us. They don't have money like us, right. which is why we gravitated towards the pill bottle. Right, right. Because the pill bottle was something that was significantly different than what the D.A.R.E. program presented to us, right? The D.A.R.E. program presented these hardcore-looking criminals that had different color skin, that had different color, of, uh, you know, their race was different, their families were different, their homes were different, their communities were different. So we had this idea, this perception of what an addict, quote unquote, looked like, where they came from, and uh, all of these social constructs that subconsciously were building this belief system in our mind that it can't be us. It can't be your son. Right. That doesn't happen here. You know, because it's as simple as you just need to start doing the right thing. Stop this and do this, and it's that simple. Unfortunately, it's not. And, and, and that's why your work is important, right? Because you're helping other parents that can identify with the way you and your wife look and your son and understand that it's not has nothing to do with racial lines. It has nothing to do with economic uh, status. It has nothing to do with where you've got your education from. It is everywhere, anywhere, and it can happen to anybody. And the brain part is the, the uniqueness to the individual who struggles with addiction. It has nothing to do with anything else. That's man. What what a what a message. So when are are you, uh, Tony? When you speak to schools, is this now a lot of the message that you're that that you work with the kids on, or how do you how do you get that across to the to the kids and to their teachers where they where the light bulb goes on? Sure. Right. Sure. I, I think what I do is try to use, and, and Matt will, know, I think can attest to some of this stuff because he's been watching me speak, you know, in the last six weeks, several times is I just keep it personal with my story. This is my experience with my father. These are the feelings and thoughts I had pre my experience with my father's abandonment and uh, lack of time that he was giving me because of his work. Here's how I managed that experience. Here's what I believe are now the mistakes that I was making when I tried to manage that experience. Here's what I thought was working. Here's why I thought it worked because it took away my anxiety. It took away my depression, my suicidal ideation. It made me normal, so to speak. And then here's actually what happened. Here's what I now do with my life as a result of being able to be a person who survived the addiction for 15, almost 16 years. 
And I think just telling stories and personalizing those stories with some mental health mechanics behind what was happening right. helps them understand without making them feel like it's a mental health lecture. Right? Is it's it, it's giving them a place to connect with my feelings and my my behaviors and my thought processes and because I still feel like I'm a kid, I still feel like I can identify with those 12-year-olds today. Right. You know, it's like when I was at the continuation school just in Minnesota yesterday. You know, the kids that said, we feel like you understand us. And it's like, I do, because I was you. But the, yeah. the, for, for me, once I was kicked out of seventh grade, I was able to kind of tighten it up and get back into the larger form of school, Clovis High School. Even though I was there, I still felt like one of them at Gateway, right? Like I was an outcast. I was a black sheep. I was misunderstood. I was supposed to be over there with them. And so I do get them. I do get the, the, the mental health, the, the trauma, and how that's all creating this behavior. So, yeah, I just, what do you think, Matt, right? Yeah, I, the thing you talk about with the, when you snap and talking about every, all, all the emotions that you've been going, feeling as, as a youth in, in high school, whether it's the suicidal ideations or uh, the anxiety in that, you're searching for something to, to make that go away and then, and then finding that and in, in the drug use and it's not, it's not, it's not the uh, permanent answer, but it's a way that they're, um, that they are able to relieve that pain. And I I think that's the way that they really identify with what you're talking about. Yeah. So there's a moment when I take them, because I take them through everything. I take them through um, the robbery, how that happened, what that was like, and I tie it into kind of some vaping behaviors as well. But I get to the point where I try Oxycontin for the first time, and the snap is what instantly fixed what I had been trying to fix since I was 12. I just wanted the anxiety to stop. I just wanted the depression to go away. I just wanted the suicidal thoughts to go away. I just wanted to be normal. Instantly, I could achieve that with a half of this green pill. And all I was trying to do was just be normal with it. And people tell me, and I always use this as an example, people always tell me, you know, I tried cocaine. I tried a painkiller during a, and they gave it to me after a surgical procedure. And I only took one or I only did it once because I felt out of control when I did it. And I don't like feeling out of control. I always turn around and say, what if I told you I felt out of control like you did when you were on that substance, but I felt out of control without anything. And then when I took that substance, I instantly felt what you get to feel without any substances. Would it make sense why I would do this? Because all I was trying to do is achieve what you were wanting. Right. A sense of balance. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) you know, I am. I've, I've told this uh, story several times. I was speaking to a group one time, and the, the people I was speaking to, and I told a story about my son, and they immediately wanted to know, you know, we got to blame somebody. So, Jim, did you find out who the dealer was? You know, who's your son's dealer? You know, you know these are people we should string them up. And, and, I, and I had this epiphany, and, I, and I, said, I said, you know, my son's first dealer was probably me and his mom. You know, here, here in, you know, especially in my generation, if you go have a surgery and you come home, you don't take all your medication, they're still st- sure. stuck, stuck in the medicine cabinet. Mm-hmm. From the time my son was four or five years old, if he got sick, we gave him a pill. Mm-hmm. And then if he was really sick and we went to the, the doctor, the doctor would prescribe more, more pills. pills. So is it any surprise then when he was... 14 or 15 or 16 and wanting to feel normal. Mm -hmm. Like you said, and one of his buddies said, Hey dude, take a Xanax, man. This is, yeah, this will do this shit. Yeah. Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he do that? That wasn't like, I mean, we trained him. Yeah. Yeah. But you were also trained to, to, to believe that that was the route as well. You know, if we're, if we're going to do that, we also have to do, um, I, I've loosely throw out the word boomer and, uh, or the generations very close to it, at no fault to them, 
they were taught that doctors were the highest educated people in the world. They oh. studied the human body and the medications that they were creating were designed to fix things that were wrong with humans. Take this pill, it fixes the problem. We've then come to find out 40 years later that pharmaceutical companies oftentimes are creating drugs for profit, not for yeah. the, the, the well-being of human beings. And that doctors are actually given pills by people that just have bachelor's degrees that are basically right. sales agents that teach the doctor about the drug. Right. So the doctor doesn't even necessarily know about the drug. Right. And this right. is why we have to do our due diligence now. Right. When it comes to medication. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and that's exactly this, the situation that, and, and I'm, I, I, I tell that story that way again, for other people that are my age to say that I understand it now, I don't, I don't beat myself up about that anymore. I mean, I, cause I could forever. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. But, but uh, you know, I, I just think that that that's, that's, that's interesting and especially because because we're the ones also that are the administrators in the schools. It's it's interesting that you know you have a kid that all of a sudden is using, he's all of a sudden involved with this, and and you say, well, why would you do that? You know, why why would you even why would you even mess around with that? Well, it's because you know again that's what we've been taught, right? And like you said, it's it's a generational issue. It's not like yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of bad kids. No, no. And I you know what I I commend you on that because I'm a person who has committed my life to internalizing events and things and circumstances and outcomes. And I truly believe that peace, um, joy, serenity, or a feeling of an overwhelming amount of positivity is something that we find within ourselves. We don't find the drug dealer and feel justice that removes the pain. Right. Right. We don't find the family that had a person sexually abuse our child and get them in jail and then feel the, the vindication of knowing that this predator is no longer on the streets, right? The work is actually on the inside, is what do we do with this outcome, this situation or this event that we're a part of, and how do we personalize it in which we then take that and give it to other people? That's why I commend you on what you're doing, because you're never going to remove the loss of your son. That hole will be there for the rest of your life. But what you can feel a lot of the voids that have come with the grief of losing your son is all of these things that are impacting the world in such a great way that your son is able to look down and say, this was actually the design behind me leaving was so the greater good could take place through the work that you're doing today. Because if it wouldn't happen, we wouldn't be on this podcast right now. Somebody wouldn't be listening. And I know that that's, um, this is how I personalize it. But it's, to me, it's about finding that purpose within yourself. It's why I do what I do today. Because I had to make a decision. There's no way that I went through all of this and survived for me to just go get a job and not tell anybody about it. No way. Like, there's got to be a greater purpose to this. And I'm going to find that. And then finding that, that's where my pieces come from. I'm not right. perfect. I have my days. I still struggle with my mental health. But you know what? I now believe that where I'm at is where I'm supposed to be. And that what I'm doing is finishing the mission that was given to me. So at the time when it's my turn, that I did everything that I could. Well, that's, and that's what we do. We do everything we can. Yeah. I, that's why I, I, I won't commend you enough. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. That's that. Those are, those are kind words and I appreciate, and, and, and there's times where I really need to, you know, I really need to hear that too. So I appreciate that. that that's good. There's a great book, um, uh, that my, my, uh, grief therapist, uh, recommended to me and it is called finding meaning. And uh, David Kessler is the is the author, and uh, he he wrote he worked with the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation, you know, and they have the five steps of death and dying, you know, and in grief, and so he, he talks about the sixth step is finding meaning, and when you've had a, a tremendous loss, and that loss can be, I think it can be a loss like a, a loss of your youth or a, a loss of years that you have, or the loss of my son, and and uh, but but attaching some some meaning uh, to that. And so that's what, I think that's what we do. You just described it very well. 
Yeah. Uh, and I just yeah. want to heal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in, in speaking of that, and, and, and I want to be cognizant, I, I know I want to keep as, as, as close to an hour as I can, you know, for your time. Uh, and dude, I had no idea that you are like a wealth of information. <laughs> or if you were one of my buddies, I'd just say you're full of it because you're like full of information. Yeah. <laughs> And so I don't even know where to go, but I know that there's one thing that I'd love for you to to talk because I think it fits right into our conversation here, and and with 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 kids feeling this way, kids are going to experiment. This is going to be, and, and we know that, that that an incredibly high percentage of all adolescents are going to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Again. Much like we teach our children to experiment. That's how they grow, mm-hmm. right? And so this is one of those paths that they're going to take. Mm-hmm. It's, go, it's, it's going to happen. Talk about harm reduction for a minute and how that concept uh, has, has integrated back and how it's changed, maybe even how recovery looks today as opposed to how it looked 30 or 40 years ago or five years ago even. Sure. I'll give you a couple examples. One of the things that I get asked, because I speak to a lot of healthcare organizations, is something less frequently coming up. It is, what is my opinion on, Matt, medication for addiction treatment? And I always tell people, things like Suboxone or Vivitrol or these drugs that are given to individuals who suffer from substance use addictions to help aid in removing cravings that are driving them back to these substances that are causing high amounts of overdose deaths in the United States is let's just take what we have known to be recovery in the past 12 steps, right? Abstinence base only. Right. And then there's MAT, this new thing. If this city was to flood and there were rescue crews and we only had two types of rescue crews. One boat was filled with abstinence-based only people. The other boat was filled with MAT people. This is what would happen. The city would be flooding, and the crew would go out in their little boat, pull up to a person that was in the water that's drowning, and they would say, hey, can you swim? The person would say, no, I can't. The abstinence-based only boat says, oh, dang, well, call us if you can. Because if you can, then you can be in our boat. But if not, you're not allowed to be in here. Yeah. The interesting concept about that is keep coming back, which is almost like, hey, keep calling us for help. But you can't get in the boat when you call unless you're able to swim. Because we only allow swimmers in the boat. Keep coming back. The MAT boat pulls up and they says, can you swim? And they say, no. And they say, that's okay. We have a life raft. John, get the life raft, throw it in. And they throw him a life raft. Hold on to it. And they pull him in the boat. They sit him down in the boat. John gets to know their story, finds out why they can't swim. And John says, you know, I'm a certified specialist in teaching people how to swim. My partner, April, over here, she's also certified in helping other people swim. We want to try and teach you. Stabilize this individual, put him back in the water, see if they can swim. If they can't, we say, that's right, get back in the boat. And we're going to continue to work with you and try and teach you how to swim. Really what harm reduction in form of medical assisted treatment is doing is giving people an opportunity to not have to feel the cravings that are driving them back to the substance that's killing them and stabilizing them in an environment with therapy and the tools of recovery, whether it's smart recovery, whether it's 12-step recovery, whether it's spiritually based through Christ-centered tools of um, celebrate recovery, Whatever it is, we're stabilizing and empowering the individual to utilize these new coping skills to deal with what it is, their root cause of why they use. And there's no time limit on that. Nobody is expecting anybody to be perfect. The other side, which is changing and evolving, usually will say you're not in recovery if you're on Suboxone. You're not in recovery if you're taking a Vivitrol shot. Well, I would challenge that and say, yeah, they are. If they're working towards an internal cleansing in which 
they're trying to be a better person for themselves and others and make an amends and uh, do inventory work and give back to others, they are very much in recovery. What we have to recognize is, is that opioids, the way they attach themselves to the brain as an antagonist, work much different than the drugs of your day. The opioids today have a craving period that lasts six months longer than the average substance, wow. which means while an individual is getting sober on opioids, they're going to feel the pull and the crave and need and desire for the drug six months later, just like they would at day two. They just won't have the physical symptoms of the withdrawals that are created through the opioids, if that makes sense. Sure. So MAT is actually stopping that craving from occurring while we stabilize the individual and get them on a path of recovery. There's other harm reductions in which we recognize young individuals are going to use. It's much like the family that says you're not allowed to have sex till you're married. It's a really cool concept until you turn 18 <laughs> 22 and you're in college and everybody's hormones are at an all-time high, right? Like you're the dog jumping the fence um, because that's just kind of human instinct, right? As we have that human instinct, the individual or the parent says you're not going to have sex till you're married, knowing that they had sex long before they were married. Sure. And sure. we teach them this idea that's not really true. It's true for a very, very small number. What harm reduction is saying in this type of aspect is condoms and contraceptives are what we use to make empowering decisions that don't put us in a position where we, one, contract sexually transmitted diseases, and two, have a kid before we're ready to bring a young child into the world and provide the proper care to this young person so they can grow up to be healthy and productive parts of society and community. With substances, we're saying in today's world, not only do we say condoms and contraceptives are how we make empowering decisions for self in a sexual or intimate realm, Narcan and fentanyl testing strips allow us to make sure that if we're in a place where we're experimenting with drugs, we make a safe and calculated decision that the substance we are using does not contain a life-ending substance called fentanyl. That's it. Because they're going to experiment. The last yes. thing you want is an individual to be experimenting and lose their life when they didn't need to lose it. It, it, it. When I hear people say, we're just enabling them to use drugs. No, we're telling them that if you do, this is what smart use looks like. In that conversation, we're also teaching that individuals that struggle with addictions look just like you, and this is how we support these types of individuals. In that conversation, we're now connecting mental health and trauma to the experimentation and trying to change the way that we feel and secure our emotions. So are we using these tools to cope with our experiences, and is that what we want to do in our pathway of trying to find some emotional security and, and regulation? Is we're trying to educate individuals on the reality of world now safe injection sites the the jury's out on that right because if we're giving needles and we're giving them a way to, to to shoot dope in the wild then we're just saying it's okay to use drugs sure but we're also putting them in an area where they can only use those substances this is my opinion places like san francisco there should not be an open shooting gallery in the public if we open up a safe injection site in a place like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, that should be the only place. If you use outside of that, you're breaking the law. Breaking the law means you are arrested, and then you are put through a system and put into places in which you have to be treated. If you go to the safe injection site, you are free to do what you do, but you're also confronted by nurses, social workers, doctors who have compassion and empathy for your situation and let you know that if you need help or you get to a place where you're ready for that help, we have all the resources available, housing, treatment, aftercare, whatever that may be, continued mental health counseling. And, and Tony, I've, I've read several different accounts where exactly what you're explaining is in other countries is working very successfully. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Portugal is a, a big example, the decriminalization of drugs. I'm a supporter of that. Although I don't like the legalization of marijuana and 
these other things, you know, you say, well, how would uh, decriminalizing things like heroin and these other drugs really play a role in our society? Well, I can tell you this. If they legalize heroin tomorrow, I'm not going to the store. <laughs> it doesn't make me want to go. Right, in fact, right. if I walked by and I saw people going into that store, my heart would break. Just like it broke every time I watched somebody in prison put a needle in their neck that I knew was being shared with 1,400 other inmates and they were instantly contracting all types of diseases because you have to be in a lot of pain right. to be there. But if we diverted the money we spent from trying to lock individuals up, because see, like you go get the dealer that got gave the stuff to your son, right? You get rid of him, but who's next? Right. There's always somebody else in line. Right. You can't kill the snake by taking piece of its tail, or you can't get the lizard when the lizard can drop its tail and still be a lizard. The source is still going to be there, but we can take the money we're doing and spending on chasing parts of the tail that get dropped every time and build up a bigger social network, more mental health facilities. I truly believe that every person that's acute mental health in San Francisco needs to be in a facility that we take care of them. They should not be on the street. We should have a duty as a community and society to take care of them. Letting them sit in the street and kill themselves with substances is absolutely insanity to me, right? But we don't have the money to build the facility for them. No, but it, well, and 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 those are those are discussions. And again, that's why I'm saying, man, we could talk. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we can build plenty of prisons, right? Sure, and I've been to do, a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know when I, when I hear it, you know when I hear about all that, and then I when I hear about about the populations that are in prison and the related drug offenses that are. And then I'm thinking, well, if drugs were decriminalized mm -hmm. and if all of that money that's using just to house people that have been criminalized for something that, you know, that they may not have control over. Sure. That, that is, that it truly is just a substance use disorder. Sure. Right. I mean, what a difference that could make in, in our country, but, but there's a mindset and, and, and it's not an easy answer either. No, it's Whenever not. I it's... have, I love to have these kind of conversations because I, I can kind of, you know, I can argue both. I can argue both sides. I know that when I think about, but anytime I think about about substance use disorder now, and I think about my son, mm -hmm. and I think about what could have made a difference for him, and I can tell you that that uh, a couple of times when when we had a fifty one fifty call, and I was there with the the police, and they wanted me to take him home because he was a just a, a, a handsome, white good-looking white kid on the north end of county, and you don't really want him. And, and I would say, no, no he, he needs, needs some constant. He needs help. He needs help. He needs to, to, to know this. He doesn't need to go to prison for five years right. for everything that he has in the car right now because they didn't even want to, you know, they didn't even want to look. You know, that's part of, it's like, it's like the pendulum swings one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Either we're going to throw everyone in prison you know, that, that, uh, that even says marijuana, you know, or we're not going to do anything, anything to anybody short of, uh, them having, you know, kilos of, uh, uh, you know, of heroin in their trunk. Right. So, so finding, finding some kind of balance in that. And, and I think you laid it out very nicely. If we don't have that, mm -hmm. since we know that that's not in place right now, mm -hmm. I think that, the best, one of the best things that we can do is again continue to have these conversations. These are the kind of conversations I often say. That if you know, when when Zach was four and five years old, we started talking to him about about skin cancer, and in the sun, summer times here in Fresno, you know, it's really hot, mm -hmm. dude. We'd spray him down, you know, with with suntan lotion. He never had a bad sunburn ever in his life. Yeah, right, mm -hmm. right. Not even a problem. By the time he was a teenager, he did it himself. Didn't even think about it. Not a single time did we talk to him about addiction when he was four or five. Sure. Heading out or six or seven or eight or nine. Maybe we had to talk once, you know, maybe it, it you know, there was something on TV that sprung it up once. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a normal part of our, of, sure. our, of our discussion. Sure. And, and along with that, the other things that you're mentioning with, with mental health and, and, how, every, how that all ties in together. Yeah, emotional regularity is a huge, a huge thing. And that's a conversation that I encourage parents and communities all over the United States to really dive into is the emotional wellness of our kids, the emotional stability of our teenagers. And 
encouraging vulnerability, the ability to share our story no matter how painful it is because in sharing, we release the emotional pressure we experience, but we also release the emotional pressure of those who hear us and feel us through their own experiences and then give them the courage to release their emotional pressure through the vulnerability and courage of them sharing their story. Why, why do you think, uh, Tony, there's so much fear around that? I mean, obviously, that's not where you're at now. That's not where I'm at. But, you know, we've chosen this life based on other things that have happened to us, right? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't like this. I wasn't this open before my son passed. Sure, yeah. I, you know? I, I, here's, here's it is. Most people aren't accepting of it. I'm sitting across a very uh, intelligent man who has obviously grown in their own right through their own painful experiences. Some people could sit across and run this podcast and have no problem telling me they think I'm full of shit. In fact, I've been on that podcast. For 30 minutes, I listened to a guy tell me he doesn't like me. And he doesn't know what it is. But there's something about you. I'm just getting this really bad vibe from you. Wow. Well, if that's my experience through vulnerability, and I'm not in a place yet where you could tell me whatever you want. I honestly don't care if it's negative. That's where I'm coming from when I say that. You could say all the bad stuff about me. You can say everything negative. And I'm at a place in my life and in my journey where my self-acceptance is so good that the opinion of somebody else will affect me for a very short period of time. But for a person who's young, for a person who is trying to find stability and security within themselves, if vulnerability is met with judgment and shame, why do they want to talk? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're shutting them down. Yeah. And, And oftentimes, family dynamics already create that. How to Do the Work. Have you heard of that book? Uh-uh. Get it. Write it down. How to Do the Work by Dr. Nicole LaPera. Her and I actually have a partnership, and I mail people books. Um, students, sorry, I should say students' books. Uh, she is an absolute magician of what's, a psychologist. What's her name again? Nicole LaPera, N-I-C-O-L-E-L-E-P-E-R-A. This is a book that I think every parent should read that is, well, every person in the world should read this, but if you're over 40 years old and you're listening to this podcast, buy this book. It's one of the only five-star books on Amazon with thousands of reviews. She is, again, a magician. She understands all family dynamics in which high expectations were there. Triangulation is there where one parent is always talking about another parent's trauma that they're creating with them and how that plays a role on the kid and then what that shows up in their behavior is so much of how we behave in the world was modeled to us through the experiences we were having in our childhood with our parents, right? And so many of us don't know because generationally what we're doing is repeating what our parents did, what their parents did, and their parents did. And we find ourselves attaching ourselves to individuals that are very much like our parents, not because sometimes they're the one, but because sometimes they fit the dynamic in which was created when you were a child. It's what we know. It's what we know. Subconsciously, in the very back of your mind, you're being controlled by these things that happened when you were in a place where you couldn't intellectually or cognitively understand what was taking place. So that in itself, I think, is something important when you say what you're saying is that this piece here with the parents and how children are treated without knowing, because your intentions could be absolutely great, that we're stifling a young person's ability to say, I need help. Because what if when they tried to ask for help, we told them you don't get help without even saying that. Well, that's just, that's, that's amazing. This is where my life's at now, man. It's really trying to ride out this deep, deep journey of, you know, understanding social constructs and, you know, neighborhoods and how outcomes happen and, how it's all connected to our psyche and mental health. So, so as we, as we close today, Tony, you've talked, um, we've got to, to hear some of the things that you talk to young people about some of your ideas, boy. And, and like, there's only about 20 different areas that we could go off for another hour each. So, <laughs> right? so, uh, well, we're going to have to spend some more time, uh, 
uh, down the road for sure. Yeah, let's do it. But but I I, I want to hear a little bit because I, I know that you have a um, that that you have a facility mm-hmm. uh, down in Riverside uh, that that uh, Matt was talking to me about. I, I just I just want to because. You have a little different spin there. I mean, everybody's sure. got a little different spin. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that not everyone uh, entered into a, a addiction the same way. And not everyone has to get uh, uh, healthy sure. exactly the same way, right? right? And so there, there's different. So it, it, take a couple minutes and, and, and tell us about, uh, was it PH? PH Wellness, yeah. yeah. Paz Hoffman. Matt Paz is my business partner. Another yeah. one is uh, Barry. Barry is actually the business uh, mentoring component. We have a, a world-class career center built into our treatment center for those who are looking for a career outlet that may have been just as impacted with the record as we can still get them $21 an hour, 401ks and healthcare benefits by going through our nonprofit we created that sits underneath PH Wellness called Merge Opportunities. The most used components right now, because we're not flexing that part of the business yet, it's going to be later as we scale it up, but Matt and I and Barry are all heavily involved in fitness. Me through sports, Barry and Matt through more long-distance competitions. Matt was an Ironman guy. Barry's an ultra-marathon guy. Matt also owns a very successful gym in West Grove, West Grove Fitness. When we came together, we really wanted to create something unique in that most facilities aren't offering fitness within the facility. And so you go to treatment and you learn all of these identification points in which this is why you use. Then we try to reroute the old behaviors with new behaviors as coping skills, teach them about meetings and therapy and, and going here and doing there. But we feel like part of the shifting in self-belief can happen through fitness is seeing the body go from feeling tired and lazy, strung out on substances, to alive, thriving, and well through the activity of fitness. And that not only do you feel that while you're lifting and working out as you get the endorphins going, but with consistent behavior, you also get to see the transformation of who you see in the mirror, which we believe is a direct connection to who you start to see through continued mental health therapy, through continued meetings, through continued uh, contact, through religious organizations, however you decide to, to choose your, your recovery path. So we built an organization that has a heavy fitness component. We have a four-acre property in Southern California with three different houses. Right now we're licensed for 12. It's detox, residential, and sometimes PHP. We're looking to, to um, have a PHP facility as well. And we hire only master's level clinicians. Uh, I'm a true believer that any individual who sits down and wants to get sober or is trying to get sober should sit with the highest educated individuals. All of our other employees carry no less than five to 30 years of sobriety. The only ones that may have less time than that are our, our technicians, which is our, you know, usually our young people that are getting into recovery and have at least a year and want to get involved right, in right. staying. And, and so we do that is hire technicians um, who have over a year, but everybody else that's facilitating groups, our program directors, um, everybody around the clinical side has a minimum of five years of sobriety. And so we created this cool, unique experience with this really unique property out in Riverside in which we're kind of building, so to speak, a colony um, where people can be on a very beautiful property away from kind of the hustle and bustle world, stabilize themselves, get involved in fitness. And then if they wanted a career, they can go through the merge opportunities route and we can place them into a career after we've gotten them a get well job and stabilize them a little bit more. Dude, that, that sounds so great just to be able to, I, I mean, cause obviously this costs you extra money to create this. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we know that there are, there are plenty, and, and that's not to knock any place that doesn't have, that every, everyone kind of has a different span of, of, of what they look at. But I love hearing the fact that you have a, that you have a, a, a career module that can go with it, that you have a fitness module that can go with it. And again, just this thought process of thinking out of the box is, is, uh, is just wonderful. Cause you're, you're going to, you're going to connect to somebody out there who's thinking about treatment, but you know what? They need what you have to offer. Sure. Right. And, and that's going to be a great connection for them. That's and, just great to hear. And you know what? I also know I'm not for everybody. Yeah. I'm okay with that. We created a niche. 
And uh, we're going to scale this thing out. I have a huge vision of building this multi-million dollar facility in Dallas, Texas, that has mental health connected to it, that has detox residential, that has a huge apartment complex behind it where we provide uh, safe and affordable housing for justice-impacted individuals or individuals that are trying to restabilize themselves after substance use disorder has wrecked many things. And in that vision, I truly believe that we will build something the country has never seen before. And I believe that it's because I'm willing to give up profits to put more money into better infrastructure that gives better people an opportunity to get to where I'm at. Dude, I, I love your spirit and I love your spirit of giving, you know, and, and I, and I knew, and I had never met you before. I, I just been associated with Matt, you know, and again, so you, you guys are, are simpaticos, you know? Yeah. Hey, um, let our let our audience know how they can get in touch with you if they want to reach you or if they want to find out about uh, about the, your PH facility. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Tony M. Hoffman on Instagram is where you can find and follow my daily journey of traveling 250 days a year. Uh, we didn't get into a whole bunch of that speaking stuff, but maybe next time we'll talk about a little bit of these other things. Uh, Tony Hoffman speaking on Facebook. You can message me there or you can go to phwellness.com. Um, send an inquiry or TonyHoffmanSpeaking.com and send an inquiry that will go directly to me and we can have a conversation about um, speaking, about recovery, about anything that uh, has anything to do with life. I'm always open to, to conversations and I really just make myself accessible doing this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Brother, thank you so much for coming. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you you sharing uh, everything that you're doing. It's fantastic. Matt, good to see you again. Thanks, Jim. As thank well. you. And um, as we go today, uh, Please be sure, reach out to someone today. Tell them that you love them. This is Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.